When we meet Jesus in our scripture lesson this morning, he has been ministering in the region of Tyre and Sidon up on the northwestern coast of the uh, region of Israel and has now left that place, the Bible says, left Tyre and Sidon, traveled east, and now goes along the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, we're told, then went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, the Bible says. And he, they, the people laid these people at his feet, and Jesus healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel, the Bible says. So palpable was the presence of God himself in their midst. So real was the power of God at work right there in front of them that they praised God. They hung there to listen to the message of Jesus, to receive the ministry of Jesus, not just for a few hours, but an entire day, and then a second day, and then a third day, the crowd remained there at the feet of Jesus. It was then that Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion For these people, I have compassion for these people. Now, I think it's important to understand that when the Bible speaks of Jesus's compassion here, it is not in the terms that sometimes we associate with that word compassion. When we hear the word compassion, we sometimes think of a feeling, don't we? Compassion is that um, emotional rush, that warm feeling that rises in us when we see people in need. We feel pity for people. Oh, I'm so sorry that they're going through that. I feel sorry that that happened to you. I feel uh, sad that you feel that way. But the Greek word used to describe the compassion of Jesus is a much richer and full-bodied one. The Greek word used here is the word splanch nizomai. And I've talked with some of you about this before. It is a word that is describing a compassion that is nowhere near as mild or as detached as the kind of compassion that we sometimes speak of. The word splenchnizomai comes from the root word splanchna, which literally means guts or intestines. To have splenchnizomai means to be filled with such gut-wrenching concern for another person's condition that you become absolutely committed to doing something about that need. Splenchnizomai is the word that gets used in the New Testament in that marvelous story Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. As the Good Samaritan is going down the road to Jericho, he comes upon a man in the ditch, having been seized upon by robbers, beaten up, left there for dead. And though the Levite and the priest have have looked at the man, felt a certain kind of compassion and kept on going, we're told that the Good Samaritan feels splenchnizomai. And he gets down off his horse and he goes down into the ditch and he takes the bloodied man in his arms and sets him on his horse and rides him off to a place where he can be cared for and pays for the care and comes back later to check up on him. Even though Samaritans and Jews are absolute enemies, this man is moved with splenchnizomai, Jesus says. The word splenchnizomai is also the word that we find in the famous parable of the unforgiving servant. A man comes before his master and 
he acknowledges to the master that he has a profound debt that he owes to him. And he asks the man for more time to pay off the debt. And the master looks upon him, knowing that the debt that the man owes could not be paid off with just a little bit more time. The debt that he owes is a debt of a size that a mere servant like this man could not pay it off in a hundred lifetimes. And yet, the Bible says, he is moved with splanchnizomai for the servant. And he forgives the debt entirely. The word splanchnizomai is used 12 times in the New Testament. In every single case of that word, it is used to describe what God feels in his gut when he looks at human need. In every instance, it's what God feels in his gut that moves him into action to address human needs. Splanchnizomai is not a feeling. Splanchnizomai is love rolling up its sleeves. Splanchnizomai is what drove Jesus to leave heaven, not to simply gaze down upon planet earth and say, boy, those people are messed up. I feel so sorry for them. I wish they could get their act together. No, Splanchnizomai moves Jesus out of eternity into time, becoming a servant, walking alongside human beings, laying out his life upon a cross to pay the penalty of sin, to show the magnitude of human love, to show the possibilities of human life. The compassion of God moves itself into action. And so Splanchnizomai is what leads Jesus to say to his disciples here, and I quote, these people have been with me three days already and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. I don't want to send them. I'm, he's saying here, I'm not going to send them away hungry. For I'm concerned that if I do, they may collapse on the way. The clear and unstated message here is we cannot ignore this need, my beloved disciples. We must move into action to address the need. And like that scene in the boat that we studied last week, the disciples look at Jesus in response to his statement and they say quite reverently, you have to be kidding. Lord, you've got to be kidding. I mean, did we, did we possibly miss the McDonald's or the Costco on our way up this hillside? Did you see one that we missed? Have you spotted a, a lunch wagon pulling up behind some bush around here that we somehow didn't see? Lord, I, we admit it, we're so dag-blasted, hungry ourselves, we're practically delirious. Maybe it only looks to us like there are 5,000 mouths to feed on this hillside. Jesus, are you kidding? We can't possibly do anything for these people. His disciples answered, the Bible says, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd. To which Jesus replies, as he did in the story we studied last week, with another one of those maddening answers in the form of what? 
a question. A question. How many loaves do you have? Asked Jesus. How many loaves do you have? To which they reply, seven. And a few small fish. Emphasis on small. Small fish. Now, I love this story in part because I've been in this conversation with Jesus. (laughs) Maybe you have too. I think, in fact, probably most of us have at one time or another been in an encounter with God like this. Many of us have gotten close enough to Jesus to know that compassionate action is one of his signature themes. I mean, it's a big theme in the ministry of Jesus. We hear him say that we're supposed to go out of our way to care for the least of these, his brothers and sisters, people with basic uh, human needs, social, physical, uh, emotional needs. Uh, We're supposed to go out of our way to care for them. Uh, We're supposed to go out of our way to resolve the broken or careless relationships in our life. We're not meant to just feel sorry about them. We're about we're meant to go leave our sacrifice at the altar if required and go off and repair the relationship. That's how important it is that reconciliation happen in broken relationships, the kind that define far too much of life today. We've heard Jesus' teaching about working to establish the values of his kingdom in our society. And we've heard him describe to us that that's going to require sacrifice. That's going to require taking up our cross, stretching, reaching, trusting to express his love uh, in radical ways. We've seen Jesus actually Uh, model this compassionate way of living. Jesus doesn't just talk. He walks his talk. And we've admired this about Jesus. I I suggest to you in our best moments, we've even aspired to be people of splenchnizomai ourselves, haven't we? In our clearest moments, that's what we want to be. But then we look around us. Uh, We look around us. We take our eyes off the face of Jesus. We look around us. At all of the aching needs on this hillside we call life. We shake our heads at all of the growling stomachs. At all of the groaning hearts and the disaster ravaged parts of our world. Earthquake after typhoon after disaster. So much need. We consider the huge problems in our own economic and political system these days. Just seem so woefully aching for solution. We gaze in stoopless in, in helpless stupefaction at times, or, or stupless helpefaction, I guess, uh, at the layer upon layer of ill will and uh, difficulty that piles up in our family life and in the relationships within our workplace. We look at the giant chasm between races and cultures and classes today. We see the urban poor and broken families and the bad schools and the cycle of crime and incarceration. And we feel so overwhelmed and frankly so wearied by all of the needs on life's hillside. I mean, is this just me? Or do you understand that feeling yourselves? What makes matters worse, I think, is that we're hungry ourselves. Like those disciples, we've also been there for day after day after day. And we're hungry ourselves. 
We're hungry in a physical sense, maybe for food or for physical affection or for or for rest or for healing. We get hungry in other ways, too. We feed voraciously on what this world offers us to fill us up inside. We've tried the entertainments and the addictions. We've tried the dalliances and the diatribes and the prideful politics and the shallow pieties and all of the things the world is always dishing out, saying this will fill you, this will help you, this will satisfy you. And yet we found that these things don't. We found that affluence is no substitute for abundance. We found that in spite of the recent economic downturns, we have seen the greatest rise in material affluence in the past 50 years in the history of planet Earth. And yet study after study shows that we're more lonely, more fragmented, more distracted, still restless and discontented. We are hungry of soul. And we may not be ready to spend three days in a row sitting at the feet of Jesus. But like that original crowd of thousands, we did come out here today. We did set our clocks ahead, some of us, and get out here to be sure we were out here. Because we believe that somehow in Jesus there lies an answer to the deep hungers of our life. That is why when Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? How much bread do you have? It's such a great question. It is one of those great questions. It's one of those deep searching questions that gets right down to the heart of our condition. And like the disciples before us, we stammer a bit for an answer to that question. We take inventory of what it is we do have, of what's already in our hands. And we have to admit, we do have something. We have these, we have these loaves. We have these handful of sardines. But underneath our breath, what we are really saying to God and to Jesus is, not enough. That's what we have. Not enough. We don't have hardly enough in our satchels to feed this whole hillside of human need that you keep talking about, that we're supposed to care about with splinch nizabai compassion, Jesus. Heck, we don't even have enough to satisfy our own soul's hunger. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Where could we get enough to feed such a crowd? Where? Where are we going to get that? The assumption within our statement and that of the disciples here is that if these large needs are going to be addressed, then the resources are going to have to be supplied to us. They're going to have to come from someplace outside of us. And as I'll say in just a moment, that's partly true. That's partly true. That's significantly true. But it is also partly false. Which is why Jesus does not ask here. How much food can you get those people to go out and rummage up out there? How much food can you get the Israeli government to supply for those people out there? Instead, Jesus asks, How much bread 
do you have, my disciples? The disciples, I imagine, looked down at the ground for a moment. Then they looked around in their circle for a moment. And they had to admit that they at least had something to offer, even though they were sure it was not anywhere near enough. But they humbly and dutifully and wisely did what? They put that little bit into Jesus' hands. The Bible goes on to tell us that then Jesus told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them. Does this sound familiar? Does this remind you of anything else? Anything else you've read in the Bible? This is a prefiguring. This is a picturing ahead of time. Of that even greater act of taking the simple gift, and making it available to the transforming power of God for the healing and feeding of a world in need. This is a prefiguring of the Last Supper. This is a prefiguring of Jesus' giving of his own body, the bread of life upon the cross. And we're told here he broke the loaves and the fish and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. And everybody shouted, I want more. I'm still hungry. I didn't get enough. No, it's not what the Bible says. They all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000. And more than five, frankly, including women and children. Just consider the abundance, the overflow made possible by those who put just a little bit of what they had into the hands of Jesus to see what he would do with it. Now, there's an interesting theory that's gone around for years now, about how the crowd actually got fed that day. Some scholars suggest that by starting to share what he and the disciples had, the little bit that they had still, by starting to share it with other people, the people in that vast crowd were suddenly moved themselves. They reached inside of their cloaks and their garments where they had hidden some food they were stashing up because they could tell it was getting late. They'd been there days. They were running out. They'd saved it for themselves. And now inspired by the generosity of Jesus and his disciples, the the crowd is similarly moved and they turn and they pull out what they have and they begin to break it and they begin to pass it. And this is how everybody gets fed. Now, I personally hold to the more traditional, even more supernatural multiplication of the supply that day. But the, the other explanation has a point that's worth considering. Sometimes, sometimes we actually have more than may be immediately visible. 
Is it really true that we do not have enough resources to address the needs on the hillside? Is that true? Are we sure that's true? Do you realize that if we took just one quarter of the $450 billion that Americans alone spend on every Christmas, $450 billion, we took one quarter of that, we could supply clean water to every person on the planet. We could guarantee an ongoing supply of clean water to everyone on the planet if we took just a quarter of Christmas and redirected the giving. Think of the multiplier effect on the health of people across the world if they had clean water. Think about this. Do you know that if every church in America adopted just one homeless person, took into their midst one ex-offender and that family, and teamed up on them, ganged up with grace around those families, helping them find their way, opening doors, supplying discipline and structure, doing teaching and, and development of new patterns of living, if just... Every single church just found one family like this. We could eradicate homelessness within the year. We could reduce dramatically the 75% recidivism, return to prison rate, that is the scandal of Christian America around the world today. Uh, A nation in which we warehouse uh, human beings uh, at a level that no other civilized society uh, does uh, today. There is enough agricultural know-how. There is sufficient food. There is enough capacity to transport goods today to end world hunger in our lifetime. We can do this. There are sufficient resources now to immunize and to educate every child in the world. Were the choice made to redirect monies and time now being spent on considerably less uh, far-reaching and productive endeavors? If all of the people who call themselves Christians, I'm just talking not to churchgoers, just the ones who name themselves as Christians, if they simply elected to boycott instead of to tolerate and embrace and feed upon the humanity-degrading, morality-polluting stream of electronic media that passes for entertainment today. If we were to simply say enough, No more. I'm not paying for this stuff anymore. I'm not investing in it. I'm not giving it away to other people. I'm not not supporting this. I'm going to take those dollars and redirect them towards something creative and life-giving and life-enhancing. If we were to do that, we'd have billions and billions of dollars more to invest in healthcare and security concerns and all of these other much, much more important matters. I believe we'd see a dramatic improvement in human culture. If we just took our Blockbuster monies and our Comcast and our AT&T U-verse monies and use them differently. As our own Reverend Tracy Bianchi points out in her wonderful new book, Green Mama, much of us have the ability to make simple choices that would have a profoundly positive impact on our environment. Now, you don't have to be a tree-hugging new ager to want to do this, right? You don't. You just have to be somebody that believes that God actually meant it when he said, care for my creation. 
You just have to be somebody that actually thinks it's a good idea to have your grandkids inherit a world at least as clean as the one you got when you entered the picture. The great headline that I'm trying to paint for us here in these various specific situations is is that it is simply not the case. It is simply not the case that humanity lacks the material resources to help many of the people on life's hillsides. That's a dodge. That's just not true. The principal issue confronting humanity today is that too few of us are willing to put the loaves and the fishes that we have in the hands of Jesus. To be guided by the priorities of Jesus. I said earlier that it is partly true that the answer lies outside of ourselves. But that answer is not the government. The people there today are far too busy groping each other and gaveling each other to be able to get it together to address some of these concerns. Well, God never put hope in government to fix all of the problems. You didn't hear Jesus talking about Herod as the answer to the needs of this moment. No, the answer to our world's biggest problems, the answer to our world's greatest opportunities lies in what happens when he who is the bread of life himself comes to live and indwell and to fill up human beings and to fill that people with their life so it starts to overflow to other people. That's what Jesus is prefiguring in this breaking and this giving. He's prefiguring that moment when the bread of life himself is taken, is given out and taken into people in a way that alters them entirely. Jesus does not ask us to save the world. Let me be very clear on that. He doesn't even ask us to save ourselves. He doesn't even try to get us to save ourselves. He actually says you can't do either. Save the world or save yourself on your own strength. What Jesus says is much different. When he asks, how much bread do you have? He is really asking, how much of me do you have? That's what he'll be asking at the Last Supper. How much of me do you have? How we answer that primary question absolutely determines how we view and use our loaves and our fishes. You see, if you take me into the center of your being, says Jesus, then I am going to give you My guts. The more you take me into your being, the more you're going to be filled with my splanchnizomai. It's just going to fill up the hole within. And you're going to find that you actually can spare more than you knew you could. You can spare some encouragement, some some kindness, some grace to some of the people you're going to meet this week who are growling for 
those gifts. You're going to find that you can extend hospitality to that stranger. You can extend patience to that woeful slow-goer, maybe in your family or your workplace. You can extend prayer or comfort to the bereaved or the anxious people, and they are all around us. They're in this room with us today, even though they may not look that way on the surface. You will discover that you can take some resources that you had planned for consumption and you can redirect them for compassion. If the bread of life is filling you up, you'll find that you not only can do these things, but that you actually feel moved, helplessly moved to do these things, that you have enough to do these things because the bread of life is in your gut. Filling you at the core. And so Jesus asks, How much bread do you have? And if your answer is, Not enough, Lord, then ask Him, and He'll fill you with more of him. And you'll find over time that that gift multiplies till it is much more than enough. Please pray with me. Lord, we just ask that you would prevent us from ever becoming so overwhelmed with all of the need out there that we fail to move into motion those things we have been given. Help us to just focus on faithfulness, leave full fruitfulness and effectiveness to you. And then, Lord, before any of that happens, just keep us taking you into the center of our being. Make us people of prayer throughout this week, asking you moment by moment for the grace and truth we need to live a life worthy of our calling, Thank you that you speak still to us through your scriptures. Thank you for what you have implanted of yourself in us this day. Let it grow in us, Lord. And overflow in splanch nizzo, my, to the people we meet in the days to come. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.